Welcome to the Recover You podcast with Kyleen and Patrick Terhune. It's here that we talk about sex addiction, betrayal trauma, mental, emotional, and physical health, faith, and anything and everything needed to recover you to your most authentic self that God created you to be. Patrick. Yes. What do you call a well-balanced horse? I don't know. Stable? No. That's <laughs> so funny. That is very funny. Okay. It's well, okay. welcome everyone welcome. To, to another episode of Recover You, where I was just telling Patrick, I was like, we need to start the episode with something other than, hey, Patrick, hey, Kylene. And I said, we need a catchphrase. And he goes, want to tell a dad joke? So you're welcome. There it was. <laughs> so today, we're talking about the top five questions. Top five. Words are hard. <laughs> Today. <laughs> I start out with a joke and this is my reward. Top five questions for addiction and betrayal recovery. Mm-hmm. So I have some of the most common questions that I get from uh, women who have been betrayed. And Patrick has some of the top five questions that he gets in his support groups and from men going through recovery and maybe Mm -hmm. some that you had yourself. So we actually did not uh, tell each other what these questions are, but we're both going to, to provide input on them as we go along. So I'm just going to start with the top five I get for betrayed people. Okay. Okay. So the number one, I guess, I guess I'll start these aren't in a particular order, but the number one question is how can my husband do this to me? Or another way of phrasing this question very similarly, which is exactly what I said in the beginning is how can you love me? Or can you really love me and still engage in this behavior? So how can he do this to me? Like, how is he capable of this and kind of intertwined with that? Is it possible to love someone and engage in this behavior? (laughs) So I have my thoughts. You have your thoughts. All right. Question two. Yeah. (laughs) So the most basic answer I think I have to this is that, um, and I'm going to just generalize when we talk about addiction and sex addiction, we generally are talking about men. So this may be slightly different in a female brain, but I'm not necessarily sure that that's true. I think they also have the capability of doing that. So when I answer this, just kind of keep that in mind. Um, But the general answer to this is that men have a real ability to compartmentalize. And so they really, truly view these as two separate worlds that they are working in with two separate sets of rules. And the addiction is very much set aside in this box of addiction and real life with you and your relationship and your family and your kids and your activities and all this kind of stuff is separate. It's a different box. And a lot of times, and again, this, this is um, a little generalized that may not always be the case, but many, many times these two boxes in their mind don't overlap. So like I had a lot of questions throughout that period of like, okay, well, when you're with me, were you thinking about this behavior? Were you thinking about the other women? Were you visualizing other things? Right. And like in your mind, they did not overlap at all. Now, in some cases that may not be true, but generally speaking, what I've learned about addiction and sex addiction specifically is that in your minds, in the addict's minds, they are two separate, completely distinct worlds and that they don't really blend into each other. So 
Um, that, that helped me understand it. Um, if any of you have heard about Doug Weiss, he has a video that he created called Unstuck. And I think it's available for like $25 or $15 or something like that. And he really describes it as a video game. And if you think about it as a video game, they go into this addiction world and it has video game rules, which means there are no real life consequences in the video game. Like in, a, in a video game, you're playing a game. And he, the way he described it really helped me kind of understand how those worlds are separate because when you're playing a video game, the you, you don't live by the same rules that you do when you're sitting across from me at the dinner table, right? Like you can you can murder someone in a video game and you don't go to jail for it, right? You get 50 coins or what, I, I don't know. But one of the things that kind of stood out to me was that analogy, particularly because one of the questions that constantly comes up kind of underneath this umbrella of how, how could he do this to me? It's like, how can you talk to these women like this or engage with them or text them or sex or chats or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. How can you use the words that you're using? And the video game analogy was really helpful to me to understand this because he used the term coining, which is like back in the day, you'd keep putting coins in for right. the video to keep play. The video or, game yeah. Going. And yeah. so um, basically when you're engaging in these behaviors, you're coining, you're, you're telling women what they want to hear, or you're engaging in the behavior to keep the addiction going. So whatever that looks like in whatever scenario, and then you check out of that box and you jump into the real world and it's totally separate from you. Right. Yeah. So do you feel, do you feel like that's an accurate description? I think it is. I think it is. You know, I think, you know, you mentioned something about um, men and women. I, you know, everything I'm reading now is that, you know, it's, it's, it's getting very close to just as many women involved in pornography. I'm, I'm wondering more specifically about the compartmentalization. That's where I was a little unsure. It, it appears that it, it's very similar. Certainly we, I think women can relate better. Um, you know, people may disagree with me and things like that, but it, it appears that it's, you know, there's a putting it in the box and, mm -hmm. um, somebody goes out of the house, husband goes out of the house, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and that kind of behavior ensues. So, you know, there, there's, there's similarities. Um, as far as, um, you know, and, and I, I guess maybe I can talk about myself and then talk about the overall. Um, I remember you, saying to me, you know, do you even love me? Right. And I remember really kind of being in a panic about that because I believed I did. And, you know, it was just, and, and I, I really had to think through that. And I think what I've arrived at is I absolutely did, but my way of relating was broken. So the addiction broke my ability to completely relate to you and completely be present for you and all of those things. And I, you know, I used to, and, and I remember this when we would go through those early, early weeks of recovery, you'd be like, well, what about this time? And what about this time? And what about, you know, and it, you know as you were asking about those things and my recollection is, oh, I was hundred percent present. And I was probably, and this is a scale, right? There's people you know, people, I might have been more present than maybe other people or less present than other people in, in these, you know, there's certainly a scale. But in my mind, you know, I entered into our marriage deeply loving you and I still deep. And I think that that what because um, this process is hard. If you don't love someone, yeah, know, it's much easier to, to, to say, hey, I'm out. You Your know what I mean? Perspective with the capacity that you had at the time mm -hmm. was that, yeah, of course you, you loved me, right? right like in, right. in your mind. And that, that was, that was my question. I'm like, you can't engage in this behavior and love someone because that's not mm -hmm. what love is. And so I think that's ultimately what we came to the conclusion was 
in your mind with the capacity and the understanding that you had while living in addiction, you believed you loved me. Right. But as you've gone through recovery and understand more about like what actual intimacy and and you can't really, when you think about, you know, the definition of what love is and and how you love someone as an act, Mm -hmm. that behavior is not loving. Right. Right. And so I think we've kind of come to an agreement. I think think there's a difference there. I think loving somebody and not being loving because you can you can get in an argument with your spouse and not be very loving in your response. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but, but still even, even the understanding of how to love someone, mm-hmm. like in the truest sense of the word. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the what I would, you know, the, the sex addiction is not about sex. It's about medicating your wounds. Alcoholism is about medicating your wounds as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think because of the nature of sex addiction, that question comes up and maybe in deep alcoholic addictions, it does, but I don't, because of the nature of sex addiction, I would imagine this question comes up more mm-hmm. so than it might with an alcoholic. I'm just purely speculating there. Um, and, and that question may, but if an alcoholic continues to, to drink and wrecks his family, then you know what I mean? And, you know, gets yeah. DUIs and spends all the money. Yeah. Then, then I think those questions start to come out. So addiction right. in and of itself creates this. Well, if you loved me, you wouldn't have done this. Mm-hmm. It would just be love would just be strong enough to stop all of it. And so, um, I it's a it's a nuanced answer, right? Yeah, it's a it's, very it's a yes and no. Answer. Yes, yeah. you do, and right. it's you have it's basically like when I'm living like this, I am incapable of demonstrating true love because right. of this. Yeah. But in in the capacity that I have within my addiction, of course, I love you. Yeah, and then once you get into recovery, you very much you know with the tools and everything like that, then you can demonstrate your love. And I think mm-hmm. I think you know going to group is an act of love. Going to therapy and for yourself too, right? It's self love and you know love toward your spouse. So doing all that when when a spouse says, "I need you to do this X Y Z and all the things that we've talked about in all these podcasts," and you say, "Okay, that is an act of love." It's not Mm -hmm. just checking the block to make sure. And you know, I'm just speaking for my own motivation. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't speak for everybody in this field, but that's my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. So how can my husband do this to me? Short answer, compartmentalization and addiction is a real thing that takes control of the brain after a certain point. I think we've mentioned this or or verbalized it this way in the podcast, but it always starts out as a choice and then ends up as an addiction. And so we never want to take the idea of choice away. Mm -hmm. But once addiction is full blown, it really is, um, you know, the the stone that's rolling down the hill. Right. And and also, too, when you ask the question, how can you do it to me? You make the assumption that the addiction was about you. Right. And it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's about this individual well, yeah. person's woundedness. It's mm-hmm. about this person's inability to, or, or at that current moment has has uh, broken coping mechanisms mm-hmm. um, and things like that or unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. And um, that's a really good point to just remind you that it's never about you, even if the addiction started after your marriage, mm-hmm. which... I would say a majority of the instances that we have heard did not, they were typically like high school or younger mm-hmm. in terms of um, when all of that started. So right. I hope that kind of answers that question. Uh, okay. Second question, how can I trust again? So this one's huge because I mean, I, I could take this so many different directions. How can I trust my partner? How can I trust the world? How can I trust myself? Right. The general idea of trust is kind of gone because our reality is, ripped away and just totally destroyed. So how how can I trust that up is up and down is down when it seems like everything is flipped over because I lived my life with certain 
expectations of normalcy. The sun's going to come up. My husband's faithful to me. We have certain habits. We interact a certain way. We have certain agreements that we're living our life on. And then all, and you've done that consistently, lived your life that way with that understanding for years or decades. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you find out like those agreements were never upheld, right? right? That faithfulness wasn't there. Um, the, the conversations you had with this person that you sleep next to were lies, right? Like, so there's a lot of manipulation there. So it really destroys your sense of trust. And, and a lot of women go, how can I ever trust myself? Because obviously I didn't see this coming, right? Or how can I ever trust my husband again? Because he just manipulated me for 10 years and I believed him. Or, um, you know, how could I ever trust anybody else? And now these are all going to be a little bit different depending on, you know, are you staying married or are you are you leaving? But it's always going to start with um, trusting the small things and trusting yourself. And if it's really... There are times where it it literally does go back to start with the things that you know a hundred with a hundred percent assurity that you can count on. Like I know that the sun is going to rise today. I know mm-hmm. that the moon is going to come out in the evening. I know that the grass is green. And just remind yourself of things that are true and that are consistent that are going to be repetitive for you. Mm-hmm. And then start on really really small things to begin trusting yourself again, so that you're living in that integrity of okay, I I do know that I. Um, I go to the grocery store on Mondays, right? Or when I tell somebody that I'm going to meet them at, for lunch, I meet them at lunch. And you're building that self-integrity and mm-hmm. that reliance on yourself. And then you can even start building that even a little bit more deeply by uh, tapping into your own intuition and your decisions, mm-hmm. right? Of How did I know, you think about positive decisions that you've made in the past, and kind of tune into how did I make those choices and how did I know that they were the right decisions, right? And maybe if you drop in your body, you go, well, when I make a right decision, I feel a little bit lighter. I feel confident. I feel like I can see the future, like things kind of brighten up for me. I feel like I can breathe. There's a weight lifted off, right? Mm-hmm. When I make a poor decision or a decision I'm conflicted about, none of that happens, right? Like I still feel constricted or insecure. Or I'm worried about the future or whatever. So if you can really tap into the sensation in your body that you feel or have historically felt when you're making a good decision, you can lean into that more to begin trusting yourself in making other decisions. Um, And that really is kind of the foundation of learning how to trust again is making sure that you begin with trusting yourself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times too, and I want to make this this point, a lot of times um, people that have been betrayed will say, well, how can I trust myself when in reality their radar was going off and for whatever reason it was being suppressed. Mm -hmm. And so if you can find those instances, if you're looking back and saying, Oh yeah, my, my flag did go off here, but maybe I didn't do anything about it. Right. And there's so many different reasons that in the moment we might choose to do that. Um, you know, like I, <laughs> any tiny little flag that would have shown up before discovery, I had no reason to think that anything was happening, mm-hmm. right? I would think it was an anomaly or a fluke or whatever. There's no reason, never would have led me into this. But if you look back and you go, oh, but that was a flag and it did show up, right? That is your body right. communicating to you. So you actually can trust your intuition. It is there. And now you're just learning, going through the process of learning how to be really sensitive to it and to respect it and to listen to it and to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And that can be a kind of a step-by-step process. Um, but, you know, in terms of your relationship, because that's that's a totally separate um, thing, one of the ways through this process of learning how to trust again is 
really by starting again, by protecting yourself. And so we, we talk so much about establishing safety and stability in the relationship. And one of the uh, key players in all of this is setting those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so when you're learning how to, or if you can, or if he is trustworthy or will be trustworthy, boundaries are such a clear example for you. And they kind of, all of these healing steps, they really flesh out the truth of the situation quickly. <laughs> so if you want to know how your husband's going to respond about something, set a personal boundary. <laughs> if you want to know if he's going to take responsibility, set a personal boundary. If you want to know if he's going to express empathy and care about your feelings, set a boundary. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, it's not necessarily punitive or about him. It's about, hey, this whole situation has blown my world up. This whole situation is making me feel very unsafe. Because of that, I need some space right now. I need some time. I'm going to need you to maybe not sleep in the bedroom, just as an example. And that needs to go on for, I'm going to say two weeks right now, unless something else happens in between, at which point it will be extended. And at two weeks, we'll we'll reassess and I'll kind of check in. But really, you know, this this needs to happen until I can feel safe, right? Mm -hmm. And so- Those types of boundaries can be really important because how is trust built? By seeing that you are being told the truth and that your um, feelings and your safety is being respected and prioritized consistently over time. And so there's a huge piece of recovery for the betrayed partner that time plays into. And so there, that is just a piece to which, you know, we can do all of the emotional processing work and the trauma work and all this kind of stuff. And yes, when we have the right tools, it can quote unquote, speed the process up and we cannot speed up time. And there is just sort of an intrinsic factor that time plays in the role of recovery because you just don't have information until a certain amount of time has passed to see how your spouse is going to respond. And it Mm -hmm. takes time to kind of prove that out. And so I think that really is a big player. So when people, you know, two months in are going, how can I trust my husband? Well, you can't. Yeah, you can. And, and, you know, we, we, we talk about this at times in group. It's like, there's a process, there's a process for healing. There's a process for trust building. It's not the same for everybody and every couple, but there's a process and and you're just going to have to trust it as it goes and can continue to do the right things. And, you know, guys will ask, hey, well, she doesn't trust me. Like, okay, well, you know, you have to, you know. Well, and again, when when are they saying that, right? It's like yeah, right, six right. months in, eight months in. Well, mm-hmm. um, yeah, because you destroyed their world. Like, what right. do you think is going to happen, you know? Well, yeah, you know, Ronald Reagan says trust but verify. So, like, yeah. you know, is your are your actions verifiable? And so as, as the person who has betrayed the other person, you know, if you say you're going to do something, is it is it checkable and you have no issue if people look at it? Mm-hmm. You know, those are all important things. And over time, then, you know, the the, the betrayed person gets less activated because they check. And it's they that check time plus check. consistency, time right. plus consistency, yeah. time plus consistency. And the reality is anytime there is a new discovery or a relapse or a slip or a boundary that has been crossed. It can set that back. That sets that back. Yeah. So that's where that, if you can be empathetic, if you can be consistent and you can let enough time pass, mm-hmm. these things begin to build on each other. Yeah. And if you're somebody, cause I've, I've gone through these different phases throughout the process of our recovery where I'll hit a wall and I'll be like, this isn't happening fast enough. And you hear me say things like what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I want, I, I don't understand why I'm, I'm struggling to process X, Y, Z. Right. 
And we have talked about this a lot, but if, you know, let's just using trust as an example. Well, it's a year in, my husband has checked off every single box. He's been incredibly consistent and I just cannot trust him yet. And I really, even over the past year, haven't made any progress on that at all, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the answer to that then would be that there's something underneath that that needs to still be processed. If there is, maybe it's triggering a previous trauma with an ex-relationship and this is mapping across so efficiently in your brain that it is now convinced that you are quote unquote in danger all the time, right? right? And so it won't allow your nervous system to calm down um, and, and trust this other person. Or um, there's a, a belief that you have about, um, you know, trusting people and, and another shoe is about to drop, right? Like what I'm saying is there's, if if you're hitting these walls, there's something underneath that can still be addressed and processed mm-hmm. if all of the other things are in alignment. Right. If that makes sense. Yep. But, but the external stuff is where we start because that's typically what lays the strongest foundation. Mm-hmm. And well, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's mm-hmm. like, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation. It takes a moment to tear it down. Mm-hmm. And so if you've had a reputation, you know, this come from the betrayer side. If you've had a reputation and you've torn it down, well, it's going to take you a little bit of time to build it again. Mm-hmm. And you got to be patient with that process. And much like the, the spouse who's been betrayed has to think the same thing. It's not going to come back overnight. And mm-hmm. if you step into that, then you, in, in, or if the betrayed spouse, ignores those things and just shelves them it's going to come out at mm-hmm. some point again so you got to engage in your own healing to your point you got to listen to what your body's telling you it's telling you something and then go go from there yeah i think the time piece is really important because if you think about getting into a relationship it's like innocent until proven guilty mm-hmm. right like you jump into a relationship and you're just like i'm going to trust you until it proves I, otherwise I, it proves yeah. otherwise right and that's great after betrayal, it's unfortunately kind of the opposite. It's like you have to prove to me that you're trustworthy because I gave you the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And there's so much time under our belts where I was lied and manipulated to mm-hmm. that this is now a situation of proving innocence, right? right? Of proving that time and consistency and innocence is there and that it's sincere and that it's going to last. Yeah. Because it's just, it, it it is, like you said, it's that whole, it could be gone in a moment and it takes forever to rebuild. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay. Uh, number three, how do I know if I should leave or stay? Or maybe another way to phrase this would be, can staying be a healthy choice? So, <clears throat> or how do I know if staying can be a healthy choice? So first of all, we are not your therapists. So <laughs> everything that we're saying is um, generalized. And so please take it that way. There are a lot of nuances in a lot of situations, and there's a lot of reasons that people stay in relationships. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, optimally healthy relationships and um, deciding in a situation like this, should I say or should I leave? There are some, there's, again, there's a huge spectrum, right? There are, there's one end of the spectrum where women find themselves in this position and their spouse is completely narcissistic and um, blames them and gaslights them. and um, really tries to manipulate them and exert control over Mm -hmm. them. There's situations of physical abuse or verbal abuse or spiritual abuse, right? And, you know, generally speaking, from a very high perspective, right, without taking all the nuances into consideration, don't stay in that relationship, right? Like, that's not a healthy relationship. If we're talking about health, that's not healthy. That's not good for you. We don't want that for you. Um, Now, again, 
there's tons of nuances and tons of situations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So again, we're not your therapist, but if you're asking like, is this a healthy situation? Obviously those are not healthy. Now there's a lot in between there though, that gets a little confusing. And so I'm just going to give you, and I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but this is the general spectrum. Okay. If you're analyzing the potential health and possibility of attaining health and relationship, this is what that looks like. One, if your husband is somebody that from day one, or I I would just say in the first phases, right? Because when they're in addict brain, sometimes that's kind of tricky. I'm not going to say actual day one, but right away, he's willing to acknowledge and take full responsibility for his behavior and his actions and wants to take action on it, wants to express empathy and um, take personal responsibility. That is the ultimate situation where I'm going to say, if that's happening in your life, the probability that you guys can recover and move through and work on your stuff and have a healthy relationship, check. Okay. That's the most probable situation. The further away you get from that scenario, the less likely it is to actually end up in total health. Whatever, so whatever that uh, ends up being on the spectrum. And so then you have the step away from that, which is I'm admitting to it I might take some responsibility, but I'm also going to offer some excuses as to why I did engage or am still engaging in this behavior. And I'm going to start kind of offering these excuses and not really being as black and white about taking full responsibility. And this is, you know, I'm changing my behavior and and all this kind of stuff. So that becomes problematic if you start hearing excuses. Now, this one gets a little tricky because we talk about the underlying reasons, right? Understanding that trauma is underneath all this and emotional wounds are underneath all this behavior is not an excuse, but people can maybe use it as an excuse, right? Yeah, so yeah. so just kind of be on the lookout for that. It's like, well, I did this because da 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 happened. Yes, and right. what are you going to do about it? Well, you're right? always accountable for your actions. Yeah, you're always accountable, and it is a choice, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, there's a there. You you know, y- y- listening, you know what that looks like. You know your spouse. You know how they mm-hmm. communicate. You know the nuances in conversation. If they are utilizing it as an excuse without taking responsibility, or if they're just sharing how they are uncovering their wounds and they're working on it. And they're really excited to find this out because it's helping them be free. Right. Those are two totally different situations. So you're getting further away from, from number one. The third one is like blaming you. So when, when they really get further away from taking responsibility and just start completely blaming you, well, it's your fault that I did this. Well, if you gave this to me more, I wouldn't need to go look for this. If you were nicer to me, I wouldn't have to log on to this. Right. Mm-hmm. And so blaming is getting f- further and further and further away from the possibility of health because they're really not at the point where they're looking internally and taking any responsibility for this. Um, at least not verbally, right? They're lashing out and they're trying to extend the pain onto you. And that is not promising for recovery and total health in both parties. Mm-hmm. And then the very far end of the spectrum is where they take absolutely no responsibility and they are falling into the category of like narcissism and, and things like that, where it's just all about them. There is no empathy. Empathy is not even a possibility. And that just, that is the total opposite end of the spectrum. And just absolutely, there's really not a lot of hope for attaining true health in that relationship. Right. So I hope that kind of answers that question. It's, um, again, there's so many nuances and so many different relationships, but 
you know your spouse the best. And so you can probably quit pretty quickly analyze where they fall onto that spectrum. If they are somebody that is taking responsibility and maybe making a couple of excuses here and there, but they're really making the effort, those situations are are pretty exciting. Those are pretty hopeful mm-hmm. when you have somebody that's really taking action. Action is really the number one thing I would say to answer this question. Should I stay or should I leave? Or how how do I know if it's going to be potentially healthy if I do stay? Is do you see them taking action that's not dependent on you? Mm-hmm. So like you cannot control whether or not they go um, or whether or not they want to recover. You may to some extent be able to control if they go to therapy. Right. Because if that's your boundary, they might go. But are they are are they demonstrating that they have um, desire to do this on their own? And when you see that, that's like clue number one, that this is going to be potentially helpful. Yeah. Healthful. Right. Healthy. Healthy. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Okay. Number four, how do I deal with trauma brain, brain fog and emotional triggers? Oof, this is this is a big one. Um, but it all really we keep repeating similar things because it all goes back to the same basic components and the parts that fit together. And so the biggest thing to begin healing and recovering your brain and your body is to establish that safety. And so I talk to like if you're if you get on a, a potential client call with me or if you're working with me, we talk about the idea that we want to create safety in your environment, in your brain and in your nervous system. And so in your environment, your spouse plays a huge role in that by respecting your boundaries and by creating that consistency that we were talking about. You guys can have check-ins and communication and just vulnerability and honesty. And that creates a safe place in your environment when the discoveries are not happening anymore, when you guys are on the same page, when he's mm-hmm. active in recovery, that creates an environment of safety. And that kind of calms your environment down which then in turn helps your brain calm down because it's not constantly like looking for those little explosions to happen here and there. Um, Then there's um, just the idea that when your brain has been traumatized, it's very hypervigilant and it's constantly scanning for danger. So when we can create safety in the home environment, that takes those triggers, at least in that area away. Now we can't control, you know, if you go to the grocery store, if you um, see a commercial on TV, or if you hear something or, you know, those sorts of things are going to happen. But the more we deal with um, the emotions and the wounds and the triggers, the more your brain can calm down. And then we have the nervous system. So the more we can do parasympathetic activities and calming the nervous system down and just creating that consistency again, that is where your brain is going to eventually calm down. And when you can identify, oh, these are my consistent triggers that over the course of the past few months, like this one has really diminished a lot, but these two are like my primary triggers that continue to come up for me over and over. Mm -hmm. And they bring up these fears and these wounds, then processing those can really calm the brain down and calm the nervous system down as well. I think you have to recognize that when you get traumatized, whether it's by betrayal or um, anything that that trauma brain is going to be there mm-hmm. and you have to just recognize it. It's like anything once you recognize what it is. So mm-hmm. a little bit of a fog, um, inability to think things through, mm-hmm. lack of focus. Um, those are all natural things. Insomnia. And, you know, like like you were saying before on like the timeline of trust, it's, it's just going to take time. Your body will have to work through it. You have to process through some things, but, but it's, yeah. there, there's a time component there and it's, not a definitive time frame for mm-hmm. people. 
Yeah. And I think um, we really use this term over and over, but I mean, we, we can't not say, we have to say it. Safety, 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 safety. Mm-hmm. If your world is blowing up, where you don't view your husband as being consistent or safe, or you don't view your partner as being secure or safe or stable, Mm -hmm. then this part is going to be very hard because your brain will continue to be triggered. And so there really is a level of not being able to move forward in this part of healing until that stability in the home is Mm -hmm. created. Right. And whether that is that, you know, you guys are working together or there's some stability because you're temporarily separated while you work all this out. But that's why safety is so important because the brain will, if it feels unsafe on any level, continue to look for danger until you find that, that place of safety. Number five, is it really possible to recover? Of course it is. Okay. So I have a complicated answer for this. Yes. That's the short answer. Yes, it is absolutely possible. And it's really hard. It is hard. It's really hard. And so um, you had mentioned earlier something that that kind of comes into play in, in this answer. And that is, again, there's so many nuances and reasons that people stay together. But here's what I have to say. If you are choosing to stay with your partner, I really, 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 really hope that you really, 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 really like this person Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that you get along as friends and that you like them as a human being and that you generally enjoy life with them. Because if that foundation of the relationship and the communication isn't there, this is going to be tough Mm -hmm. because it's, it's hard anyway. And if you are constantly feeling like you are trying to recover yourself and you're fighting with your partner, yeah, yeah. That that is just going to be so hard. Well, we, we, I think we said this last night um, when we were talking. Sometimes you have two very, very good people, two very good people who are working on their issues that just aren't good together. And unfortunately, sometimes that's a reality. And so um, back to that safety piece, if you're not able in recovery and it becomes a I think my therapist called it like a seesaw, right? So if one of you is always higher than the other, then there's a hierarchy piece. Mm -hmm. And so in recovery, in a relationship, it has to get to a level playing field because that's how you move forward in in recovery. And if you never allow yourself to get there, then that could be- Teamwork. Right, yeah, it takes- Teamwork makes the dream work. Well, yes, outside (laughs) of the euphemisms, but- um, No, but I mean, that's so true because what even like if you take our relationship as an example, the times that have been the hardest for us are when we feel like we're not on the same page and we're not working as a team. Right, right. That's when things are really hard. Mm -hmm. You can deal with almost anything in life if you feel like you're working towards the same goal, you mutually respect each other, you mutually like each other, and you mutually help each other get there. Mm-hmm. Now, in the very, we've talked about this several times, I think, in different episodes, but at the very beginning, like there is a little bit of a, uh, I don't want to say power shift, but, well, but kind of, be. yeah. I mean, because, you, have to, you have to establish boundaries, and that usually requires a level of hierarchy. Right. And there's, there's some accountability there. That's right. just, it's not normal. Yep. The dynamic of the relationship is not normal when you're like, let's, get stable and, mm-hmm. and kind of figure that. But yeah, as you heal, you even back out because that you is, have you have to right. like that. 
I used to say, you know, we can't be in a relationship where you're, I'm the prisoner and you're the prison warden. Like that's not a relationship, you know, that's, and, and, and nobody should have to live that way. Can you just clarify for everybody that I was never your prison warden? No, no, you weren't. But, but I mean, it, it's, you know, it's the, you know, boundaries at some point have to come down. Yeah. And restrictions you, have to as a more general down. sense, not as like yeah. Kylene I'm being a terrible. Um, well, yeah, I called you jailer. I said good night, jailer. Stop it. <laughs> so no, I mean, I think um, is recovery possible? Yes. Are the statistics that it's rare true? Yes. Is it possible to recover as a? Okay, wait. Let me clarify that for addiction. Are the statistics low? Yes, and. I always say that I think when somebody has the right desire and the right resources, mm-hmm. it's Absolutely. totally possible. Yeah. Period. Yeah. End of story. Is it possible to recover the relationship? Yes. And it's very hard. Mm-hmm. And you you um really have to be committed to the process right. and, and take that very seriously. Cause we hear a lot of um there's so many situations where one of the spouses like will not get therapy or um, does not want all the information or all these kinds of things. And that I understand a lot of why individuals would make these decisions because there's a self-protection mechanism, but it ends up showing up later in life. And you're not able then to have the deepest relationship with your partner. You're not able to live life in a completely free and secure way because there's this wound that's just festering inside, whether it makes itself obvious regularly or not, you know, because if it's not making itself obvious, then it's possible that you've numbed it out or something like that. So, you know, when you're talking about optimal health and growth and optimal relationships and stuff like that, it really takes a deep commitment to the process. And that's a multi-year process. Yeah. It's a multi-year process. Absolutely. Right, good job. And I really love you. Love you and too. we've worked really hard and it's and hard. we're sitting here yeah. as, you know, it's we, it's we, possible. We've worked very hard. And there's times when I'll look back over the last two and a half years and I'll be like, ooh, there were some really tricky moments. Ooh, you know, and then like boy, that that was it's a couple. That was not fun and stuff yeah. like that. But it's just interesting to be here at two and a half years and go, wow, this is look look at where we are, mm-hmm. you know. So which actually leads into my first question. Um, or the first question I have is why does it take two to five years to heal? So the literature basically says, hey, when you are a sex addict, um, it's going to take you two to five years. And, and guys will ask, well, why does it take so long? I went through 10 weeks of conquer. I, I feel really good. I'm done, right? And and the the reason it takes so long and it takes so much work is a little bit of you, know, you have to experience life. And how you're going to react to the stressors of life to really evaluate whether you're healed. So in the first year or the first 10 weeks, you may not have a death in the family, but you know, you might in the five year process, you may, you know, not have an argument with your wife in 10 weeks, but you are going to have a disagreement there. You're going to have kids that disappoint you and test you and you're, you're going to be alone. You're going to be all of, you're going to have to go first on a business trip. I mean, it was close to, it was what, nine months before I went on a business trip. Probably. Before I traveled, so yeah, that that was a long time. Actually, long, it was longer than that. Mm-hmm. It was it was almost over a year mm-hmm. before I traveled for the first time, 
And so you have to go through these experiences to kind of test, hey, am I, is my recovery? Sometimes it's the first time. And sometimes it's like, okay, that was fine. But then there was another phase where you had traveled a couple of times, but now your travel is amping up. And it was like every week for a little while, you know, there's all these different things happen. Well, and there's another thing that, that we all have, and it's called the arousal template. And so the arousal template is those things that you're kind of attracted to. That, that And it can be, an arousal template can be an argument that kind of leads you down a road to like engaging in a unhealthy behavior. Right. And so that could be an arousal template. So have you, have you addressed all of those things? And so what I found is I here at two and a half, I remember I felt good when I hit two because, you know, they say two to five. So I'm like, woohoo, I'm in the window. Um, but you know, it, and I did a lot of therapy. I did a full year plus of therapy and I, you know, doing groups and stuff. Sometimes guys don't get into therapy, so it could take them a little bit longer. It could also be that they have more traumas than I did. Can we pause just for a second? Because you and I have talked about this privately a lot, and let's just kind of share this as an option for people. When we take when we say taking your recovery seriously, we highly recommend um that the addict is in weekly therapy sessions in addition to group, but we also know that finances come to play a lot. And so we really view this as, um, as cancer of the relationship and you, and you need to take it as seriously as if one of you was diagnosed with a life-threatening disease. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) And so what, whatever that means in terms of, okay, maybe I can't go four times a month. Maybe I go three or maybe I go two or maybe I go once a month. Or can I ask, does my therapist do 30 minute sessions, right? But figuring out are how- scholarships, things Are like there that. scholarships, yeah. right? right. Can, how can I get that work done? Mm-hmm. Because it does, we do see that it makes such a tremendous right. impact. Right. And there's, you know, healing is like, an, and, and it, you know, there's relationship recovery, but there's individual recovery too. When you are carrying around a wound and and all of this behavior is a result of woundedness that's happened in your life and your inappropriate way of medicating that that wound. And so when you're wounded, you are keeping people or, or your relationships are stunted. You don't know how to be in relationship in a, in a healthy way. And that's not necessarily a romantic relationship. It could be that, but it's relationships with friends. It's, you know, people will isolate. Right. They won't go out and hang out with friends, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're wounded. And so this process just takes time. It's like, you know, they call it like layers of an onion. You'll put, you'll peel a layer back and go, Oh, wow. I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware of that. And so the dynamic between the couple too. So like the addict feels good almost immediately because they start recovering. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that the spouse goes down much deeper for much longer and then starts to come up from the depths. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so navigating your own recovery and then navigating the emotions of your spouse, like all of that interaction takes a long time right. because her recovery takes a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so that's why that, that's why it takes time. It takes time to learn these lessons. It takes time, it takes time to go through the through the ups and downs of daily life to, to figure out, oh man, that's a wound I got to heal. Mm-hmm. So um, the next question is why a therapist? And so, oh, we you just know, talked about that. yeah, I know, I know. But, you know, I often think about this is, is, you know, can you get in shape? Well, let, let, let me back up a little bit. In most things in life, it is very helpful to have somebody helping you through that process. So could I have learned to fly a Blackhawk without an instructor pilot? Probably not. So I needed an instructor pilot. You know, could I have, you know, when you go. um, And I'll just clarify here too. Therapist, coach, or practitioner who's really familiar with addiction and recovery. Right. Because a lot of times guys will come into the group and they'll start feeling good in the group and they don't need therapy. And then 
generally what I will try to do is if I hear something during a check-in, I may call them later and be like, hey, are you seeing a therapist? You know what I mean? Like there's a rough week, you know, they had maybe triggered a lot of anxiety and stuff like that. So uh, 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 it's getting the tools and resources. Yeah. You you know, it's it. you want somebody to help guide you through these things that is trained, that can pick up on some of the themes that you're saying that can challenge your thinking. And, and it just helps you drive healing. And there are definitive therapeutic coaching techniques that help you process through things. You know, I used EMDR quite a bit, um, brain spotting quite a bit. Had I not used those things, you know, I had to process my automobile accident from, from, uh, uh, 2005. And I really had to go through that. And I thought I had processed it. And here it was 2021 and I was processing my automobile accident. So 16 years had gone by mm-hmm. and th- Oddly enough, you would have think, well, what'd you have to process? There was a lot there and I didn't know how to process that. Well, and I I was um, talking to someone earlier too, and just the idea that there are people that have, you know, let's say drug addictions, right? And they've uh, quote unquote overcome those, but then it um, manifests later as a sex addiction. Well, why did it manifest later as a sex addiction? Well, because the emotional wounds and the traumas that were underlying all of the coping mechanism behaviors were never addressed. And so, and, and that's the reality of this recovery until you address those, you may be able to get sober and you may be able to really hold out and resist and not do this behavior. But if you get stressed or that arousal template is activated or you're triggered and you don't have a coping mechanism or that trauma or that emotion or that trigger in your nervous system is not processed and put away safely, mm-hmm. or you don't have a new way to respond to this in a healthy way, then that's going to be the only option right. because that's the pattern your brain understands. Right. Right. So that's why doing the deeper emotional work, again, whether it's with a therapist or a coach or practitioner, yeah. someone who knows how to guide you through that, mm-hmm. it kind of puts those triggers and those traumas away in a safe place so that you don't have to reach for the coping mechanism anymore. Right. Right. Well, you know, it's like, can, is white knuckling you know, could you white knuckle and keep yourself from watching pornography? You absolutely could, but that's not a fun way to live. And you want to, you know, and a therapist and a coach can help you get to the point where you don't have to white knuckle. You're not struggling. Yeah. You, you recognize where you are. You know, it's, it's, um, um, you know, you're aware of your feelings, which is a huge win. And, uh, then you say, okay, I need to be a little bit careful today. So you, you, you take some precautionary action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the third question is, why did she get so mad at me if I'm in sobriety? And so. um, Oh, my gosh. That comes up on on our side, too. Like the husband will be like, well, what's your problem? I'm doing really well right now. Why are you so upset? Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, I often I often recommend the book Help Her Heal to People. And that's a really good book because it talks about ways that you can because your 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 wife is going to get, I guess, quote unquote, triggered. She's going to have a memory, something's going to come up on social media that's going to trigger that. It, you know, if there was physical affairs, there might be a location that has to drive by or a word or something like that. And yeah, you may be in, in recovery and you may be feeling great, but, you know, she's still working through that. That's still something that's going to hit her. And so, you know, the best thing to do is to be present in there and just, you know, the the I forget the acronym that comes out of Help or Heal, but it's basically demonstrate empathy Hey, I understand that this is triggering for you. I'm sorry that I've caused that. What do you need from me? And it's one of those kinds of processes that you can help them calm down. And so if you react to it in, a, in an angry way, then then that whole piece that we talked about with trust and 
and building. Then they're like, well, why are you so angry? Like, help me through this. You caused this, you know? And so I think it's just, it, it's a, it's a tale of the recoveries of the betrayed and the betrayer are not parallel tracks. They're going to go all over the place. And at some point, the, the, each one may feel higher than the other. And, you know, but you're all going to the same destination. And so you just have to be willing to hold, you know, hold your partner's water, for lack of a better term, uh, when they get angry at your behavior. You've got to recognize it's not something that just goes away quickly. Yeah. And I would say that goes back into taking responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to understand why they're feeling the way they do. Where did that come from? What made them feel unsafe? Now, it is okay. Like if you're, three, four, five years on and something's going on as the, you know, you can say, hey, listen, this is really triggering you. I think you might need to get maybe some more coaching or some therapeutic It's the same, it's the same healing process. Right. And we've talked about that a lot, yeah. right? It's dealing with those um, emotions and beliefs and insecurities on our side too. Um, I, and from the betrayed partner's perspective, um, even just as like an encouraging note or a reframe or a perspective shift with mm-hmm. this question for the addict And that is, um, think about the fact that if we didn't love you and we didn't want the relationship to work and we didn't want something better, we wouldn't be so hurt. Right. Right. I think the depth of hurt directly parallels the height of love that we had have for you. And I also think too, if they were going to leave, they would have left. Yeah. And so now it doesn't always mean that the relationships always stay together and last sometimes you know there's there's some lasting damage or there was something going on or whatever but you got to remember that you know if if if, if people are going to leave they leave and so if they're but there but just, just, like the, the depth of the depth of the pain that we feel mm-hmm. right. i think really parallels the amount of you know correct safety yeah. that we lost for example mm-hmm. and so yeah. um it, yeah I guess I, am I making it? Does that make sense? How I'm saying that. Just say it one more time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. It, it absolutely does. I mean, it, you know, the if the if the letdown is is extreme, um, yeah. then there's going to be a lot of pain in there, and it's not going to go yeah. away in ten weeks of conquer. Right. You know. So yeah. okay. Um, why should I journal and connect with other men? You know, uh, the um, I will hear this. Well, I'm not really a journaler, and. The whole point of journaling and the whole point of reaching out to other men and talking to them is it's something that we don't do as men. And actually, a lot of times we don't do as women either. You know what I mean? So I think you have a preset neural pathway in your mind that's feeding the addiction. Those train tracks are are well used. And so by journaling and by reaching out to other men, you're creating new neural pathways. And anytime you can create a new neural pathway, what you're trying to do is replace your bad habits with good habits. So journaling helps that, you know, going to a quiet area, sitting down, going through the, you know, whatever drills they may or working through your feelings for that day. That is a different process than a lot of pe- a lot of us are used to genuinely looking through, you know, because I was keeping that five year journal and there was good stuff in there. But, you know, I wasn't going very deep. It was a very short entry. Before, right. Before you yeah, discovery. Yeah. So now, you know, in my journaling, I go much deeper. Mm-hmm. And and so you're trying to create new neural pathways and patterns and habits that support you. And isolation fuels addiction, but com- but they'll say that community is the opposite of right, addiction. Right, and yeah. so getting, you know, and again, whether it's a 
a specific support group per se. I mean, we highly recommend those, but community in general, mm-hmm. it could, because that may, that what that means may shift throughout recovery. That may morph a little bit, right. but making sure that you are in community and around people and developing relationships that aren't shallow, that are really deep and vulnerable. And you are communicating about your struggles and your feelings. I think that's one of the biggest um, pieces of recovery for an Mm -hmm. addict is having people in his life that you share your emotions and your feelings and your fears and insecurities with and and who know you. Yeah. And they, yeah, right. And when you say know you, it means they know you, they know Mm -hmm. what you've done. They know what you um, have uh, engaged in you know, with, within, within reason. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're happy to talk to you. They're happy to help you work through things. And so those are very powerful things. And you, and, you know, to be honest, I, when I see guys struggle the most, it's when they don't journal and they don't reach out when they're struggling. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and, and relapse is a part of this process for a lot of guys. And a lot of times I'll ask, well, you know, what point did you, should you have reached out? Mm-hmm. And so, and a lot of times it's like, well, I didn't think about that. And like, you know, there, it's kind of proven that reaching out to people when you're feeling anxious is, is going to help you. Well, because you need, you start to dissipate the charge of the emotion right. Right. when you can talk about it and have somebody validate why you're feeling that way. And I think so much of addiction and, and just like bad behavior in general, I mean, for all humans everywhere comes from a sense of being alone. Like I'm the only person dealing with right. this. Nobody right. can help me. Right. I'm, I'm, you know, so abnormal. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. Like any thought in your head, some other human has had it. Right. right? right. Any, you know, these, all these experiences that make us feel horrible and that are difficult and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, you're not alone in these life experiences. They may be slightly different than somebody else's, yeah, but you're yeah, not alone. That's right. And that's where the community comes in to validate you, to encourage you, to, to remind you of the tools and resources. Because mm-hmm. when we are activated or stressed, a lot of times those go right out the window. Yeah. So if you can just remember, right, maybe it's like a lock screen on your phone that that says call people when you're stressed and has a phone number right there as a reminder, right? Like whatever it is yeah. for you to set that reminder system up in place, because Again, it's when you have the heart to change and the resources, but you're using that. It's not that they exist because they they are there in the world. That's it's right. when you call somebody, text somebody, well, have coffee with somebody. Yeah, yeah, and and so like with with the connection, you know, with with other men, it's amazing how um, usually you'll have a couple guys who are pretty solidly in recovery all the time. Um, but then those folks will will get into distress too, and it's everybody's willing to come alongside you mm-hmm. in, in those in those connections. Mm-hmm. So um, my final question is, why should I prioritize group? So I have said this on this podcast that my healing was a three-legged stool. So therapy, um, being in group, leading groups, and, um, you know, kind of boundaries from you, love from you and Keegan and kind of the family st- structure that kind of helped push me along. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, group is going to be that safe space when maybe things aren't going well with with the relationship at home you know because of the hurt and you're sleeping on the couch and maybe you've had to move out or something like that but group is going to be that for you consistency right consistency and so you know and and you see it when guys don't prioritize group they struggle when they make group a priority they seem to do better and the amount of love that you see and you don't want to be you know silly on this but the amount of love you see we had somebody new come into group you know the other night 
And as that person told their story, mm-hmm. you could just look around the room and you could see the amount of empathy and love that was on everybody else's face. Mm-hmm. That's what group brings to you because you come, you, you maybe, and for the first time in your life, you're in, a, in an, uh, in with a group of people that don't judge you. Mm. That could be the first time you've ever experienced that. Mm. And um, so having that is a huge uh, part of your recovery. And so don't, it's always very scary to walk into a room where somebody says, Hey, you want to share your story and talk about, and you know, you don't want to talk about it. People don't, but you know, just seeing people, you know, shake hands and say, Hey, I'll call you this week, or you get the group texts or whatever that, that may be. But group is just really a place. And, you know, and, and, and I, I'm a big advocate of, of, uh, the conquer group, but, you know, seven pillars is, is another great group. I think there's probably some really good essay groups and things like that where, where there's a lot of healing that the Samson Society is another one that I've heard of that, you know, really generates a lot of healing and connection. So yeah, what you're looking for really is a system. Mm hmm. And a, a group of people that's not going to judge you. Right. Um, I, I would, going back to some of our previous episodes, one of the pitfalls of groups that makes them a weaker group is uh, wallowing in the identity of an addict. Mm-hmm. So just being careful that the group that you're in participation with, their whole goal is to move you forward. Right. And, and not, you know, it's not the victim mode. It's not the excuse mode. It's not the blaming mode. It's none of that. It is we have a system. It's a proven system. We're going to encourage you. We're not going to judge you. We're going to love you. We're going to push you through this system if, as long as you show up, yeah. right? And we're going to support you through this. And so making sure that you're following the system, engaged in the system, asking for help through the system. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, there's multiple systems. Um, but finding the one that registers with you and that works for you and the group of people. And, and again, if that group is not maybe clicking um, you know, check yourself first because sometimes we get a little, yeah, yeah. um, you know, that's sometimes that's an internal thing, but sometimes groups just don't click yeah. too. And that's okay. Again, if it's kind of not the right vibe right. for healing, yeah. find another group because they, well, and, and, you know, people who are, are not in healing run away. So if you're running away from group, you come up with 25 reasons why it doesn't work for you, mm-hmm. you know, to your point, check, you know, check, check, check yourself. I uh, was in my first group was great. It was safe. It was two older gentlemen and they came right alongside of me and it was great. And then the next group I went into was much larger and there was a lot of oversharing. And I remember coming home being like, I don't know if I can do this. And this is where some of the expectations and structure, I think, helped a little bit because you were like, well, but what are my other options? Right. Like I need to do this. Yeah, I kept going. And, And I remember through that process, I was like, what is God trying to teach me here? And I and I believe what what came out was. Hey, this is not all about you. These are other people that are, that are that are healing, and you can provide balance to them as well. So, mm-hmm. well, it, and you learned a lot through that process too, because now yeah. you're leading other groups, and you've seen the spectrum of, you know, how people come in and the different types of personalities, right. and and now you know because you've experienced that what's comfortable or uncomfortable, and how to navigate that so that you can protect groups in yeah. the future. Yeah, right. And so that's another thing, and that's not really like in. Um, what we've talked about so far, but the idea of going through group and staying really consistent and then moving on to be a leader to support other people through the right. process. Yeah, you have to at some point start to give back. And what, maybe and it's, it's a point in essay too. Yeah. And I think you, because that's what, you know, either it's you're a co-leader in a group or maybe you grab, you know, somebody that you're mentoring through this process mm-hmm. or whatever. Somehow you have to give back. Yeah. It's uh, that that's, you know, because that, that really supercharges your healing. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really, really good because you do three things a week and only one of those is for you. Right. The right. other two are for um, other groups. And I think that's 
not only helped a tremendous amount of people, but I think it has also helped you on your recovery journey as you're seeing and hearing these other stories, as you're interacting with other people, as you're supporting them, it's top of mind. You're constantly thinking of support strategies and empathy. And so I think it it can only impact you well when you are willing to continue the journey and pass it on. Well, awesome. Thanks for sharing those. So that was top 10 questions, I guess. Top yeah, five for absolutely. me too, and top yep. five for the addict. So uh, we should do these more often as they come up. So feel free to um, submit your questions. You can reach out to me on social media and, and send me those and give us some feedback. And if this podcast is helpful, by the way, uh, we're able to see the downloads every week and we are so thankful for every single one of you. It's so funny, Patrick. We're like, how many, how many people have listened to the last week's episode? And if we're just blown away, honestly, that you, um, are relating to this, that what we're saying is having an impact, that it's supportive. We love hearing your comments and your feedback. Um, because, you know, we're just sitting here talking about something that we're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it is helping you makes our hearts so happy and we want to keep doing that. So if you can, please leave a five-star review and a comment for us in uh, in the podcast review section. And if you do have questions, just reach out to me on social media and we would love to turn it into a future episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast interesting or helpful, it would mean so much if you leave a five-star review or post a screenshot and share on social media. We are on a mission to share the message of recovery and you can help get the word out. If you know a friend who could use this podcast, please share it.